Turn with me to Exodus. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Exodus together. And this afternoon we come to chapters 27 through to 31. I'm not going to read it all. Um, but we've been seeing God's giving instructions to Israel through Moses for the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the special tent in the camp of Israel in the wilderness where God would make his presence known. The tent of meeting. His people dwelt in tents and God came down and his presence, he made his presence known to meet with his people in the tabernacle. And this afternoon we're going to conclude this section of the book of Exodus and look at the remaining material that begins in Exodus 27 and verse 20 through Exodus 31. I'm not going to read all four chapters. I will summarize some of the material and we'll read Exodus 30. But let's pray before we come to God's Word. O Lord our God, I pray that you take your Word and by the Holy Spirit multiply it, apply it so that it nourishes, it nourishes us, satisfies us with the Lord Jesus and his Gospel. We ask it in his precious and worthy name. Amen. So Exodus 27, 20 and 21, that's verses 20 and 21, is about providing oil for the lampstand in the tabernacle. Exodus 28 deals with the various garments or the aspects of priestly vestments that the high priest and all the other priests were to wear. There's a summary of it in chapter 28, 1 to 5. The ephod, which is a kind of tunic that the priests wore. The breastpiece that had the names of Israel engraved upon it take up the remainder of the chapter. As well as the turban with a golden plaque reading holy to the Lord. So that's part of the priestly vestments. Chapter 28, 29 then stays with the priests. But the focus is not on what they are to wear, but on the ordination rituals that set them apart and consecrate them for the work, various sacrifices. And it begins with the priests donning their sacred garments and then being anointed with oil. And then there is the sacrifice of a bull and two rams that go along with their ordination service. We'll read Exodus 30 in a few moments, but then quickly turn with me to Exodus 31. And a very brief summary of Exodus 31. Uh, God has given instructions on what is needed for the functioning and construction of the tabernacle. God now provides the help of the Holy Spirit to Aholiab and Bezaliel and to others so that they might have the skills necessary to manufacture the tabernacle and its furnishings and utensils. And wonderfully, at the end of Exodus 31, at the conclusions and all these instructions and what they must do, there is a reminder of the Sabbath that, tells, that says not what you must do, but calls us to rest. A very well-placed reminder at the end of the section. But let's read Exodus 30 together, having briefly summarized the other chapters. So Exodus 30, verse 1, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. 
A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of the atonement, on a, of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is twenty gerars, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from twenty years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil 
throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices stacked and on onica and galbaum. Sounds like the body shop, doesn't it? Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Amen. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant words. Exciting stuff, isn't it? I was riveted by this. Um, but maybe it's more in the past. Maybe it's more in the past. But I remember the days when I passed my driving test that sometimes you had, when you wanted to get a car started, you didn't just ring somebody up. You had to push it. Does anyone else remember those days? Yeah, Andrew does. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there was a problem. You, know, I le- you had to learn to double the clutch, didn't you? To try and sort of jerk the, the, the engine alive. And it's better on, a, on an incline. But sometimes there was a problem. It just would not start. And if there's a hill, that's the greatest thing, unless it's icy, and you just roll the car down, it helps. But I worked out a couple of times, you know, due to misjudgment and a very inaccurate fuel reading, that there's no point in pushing the car down the hill and trying to pick up momentum if as you begin to, begin to build up speed, the reason why the car won't start has everything to do with the, that the fact that you forgot to fill the tank. And uh, how, however much you jerk the clutch, it will not start. Without fuel, the engine will not start. No matter how much momentum and how many people you get from the street to push it, it will be of no use. You have to have fuel for the engine to drive the car, to pull the car. And with that, what what on earth has that got to do with Exodus 30? Good point. But sometimes in the long obedience of the Christian life, the long obedience, we can find ourselves wondering how in the world we are ever going to press on. You ever feel like that? How in the world are we going to keep going? Where am I going to find the fuel to get going when going is challenging and hard? And our passage actually helps us answer those two questions. It's not all about perfume. It sets before us our duty very clearly in Exodus 30 and 31. And before it spells out our duty in Exodus 30 and 31, it reminds us of the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel fuels our obedience to the praise and glory of God. So Exodus 28 and 29 point us to the wonders of the gospel and Exodus 30 and 31 point us to our obedience. But it's the gospel that fuels our obedience, not the other way around. If you look at the last two verses of Exodus 27, you see these two parts of our passage represented. 
You see, in Exodus 27 and verse 20, the people are to bring oil for their lampstands. That is their work. They are to bring oil for their lampstands. But then in Exodus 27 verse 21, the very next verse, Aaron and his sons, the priesthood, are to maintain the lampstands. And there are the two parts of our passage. There is the work of the priests, Exodus 28 and 29. That's the work of the priests and the work of the people in Exodus 30 and 31. It will become clear. But if you look at Exodus 28 and 29, there are two gospel principles. And if you look at Exodus 30 and 31, you have five gospel practices. So I had an eight-point sermon a couple of weeks ago, and you'll be delighted to know I have a seven-point sermon this afternoon. So we're going to have to move quickly. If you look at Exodus 28 and 29, two gospel principles, two gospel principles. The first principle is the principle of representation. Chapter 28. If you think that Exodus 28 reminds us of the gospel principle of representation. Moses is given instructions on the high priest's garments. Two words are used to describe the high priest's garments in verse 2. They are for glory and for beauty. And the two Hebrew words behind that is kabod, you probably heard me use that before, and tafarit. So it's glory and beauty, and they're used in the Old Testament to describe God himself. There is something of the beauty of God that is to be reflected in the garments that the high priest will wear. And if you look at verse 5 of chapter 28, the garments are even made from the same material as for the tabernacle itself. Blue, purple, scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. Remember we come across, came across that before. And the ephod, which is the special tunic that the high priest would wear, is made that way in verse 6. So too is the breastpiece that covers it in verse 15. And then if you look at Exodus 28, 22 to 29, there's all this material about the golden rings. Not five golden rings, no, but golden rings. Two on each side of the breastpiece that the priest is to wear, by which it is attached to his tunic. You see, it is reminiscent, of course, of the, the language used to describe the golden rings that are affixed to the Ark of the Covenant and to the table of the bread of the presence and the bronze altar and the altar of incense and the basin for washing. There, there are these golden rings so that even the breastpiece that the high priest wears is reminiscent of the furniture of the tabernacle itself. And then in Exodus 28, verse 33, we, work that we, we see that the hem of the high priest's garment has I I embroidered pomegranates, garden imagery, reminding us of the Garden of Eden. So like the cherubim that was stitched into the curtain that separated the holy from the most holy place, again we're reminded of the Garden of Eden the place where the presence of God dwells. Put all of that together and you have in the figure of the high priest someone who is to be the representative 
in the presence of God in the midst of his people. The representative. The tabernacle is mirrored in miniature in the garments of the high priest. The people represented before God. This is what this is pointing to. If you look at Exodus 28 and verse 9, if the high priest represents God to the people, he also represents the people before God. Verse 9, there are two onyx stones, one on each shoulder of the high priest. And they're engraved with six each of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. In Exodus 28, 17-21, the breastpiece has four lines, three precious stones, each stone bearing another name of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve. And if you remember, we've just been looking at Revelation on Thursday nights, and Revelation 21. Remember, John has a vision of the church, the people of God as the new Jerusalem. Twelve foundations. On each foundation is the name of one of the twelve apostles. And then in Revelation 21, verse 19, if you remember, he tells us that each foundation is made of a single precious stone. Jasper, sapphire, and so on. These are the stones on the high priest's breastplate. So the breastplate and the stones on his shoulders with the names of the people of God engraved on them. What does that teach us? The high priest represents the people before God. The high priest is the representative of God to Israel and of Israel before God. That is the point of Exodus 28 verses 29 and 30 which I'll briefly read. Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before God, before the Lord. That's the high priest's role. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. The high priest is the representative of the people in the presence of God. And if you look at the instructions in 36 to 38 of chapter 28, the turban, centuries later in Zechariah 3, the prophet had a vision of the high priest in his generation, Joshua. And Joshua is dressed not in the finery of these high priest robes, but in filthy garments. And beside him is Satan accusing the high priest. The high priest is the representative of Israel. And Israel, representatively, is filthy and dirty and has been assailed by Satan. And as the prophet watches, the filthy garments are taken away and the angels begin to dress him in the priestly garments of our passage. But then when Zechariah watches it all, it's, it's fascinating. That's why I love the Old Testament. He rather audaciously, if you think about it, interrupts the vision and said, do not forget the turban. Put the turban on his head. Why is Zechariah so concerned about the turban? Because it says, holy is the Lord. In the final declaration, instead of the filthy garments, no matter the accusations of Satan, he is holy to the Lord. And that's what we need to hear, brothers and sisters, that in the filth of our sin, 
the righteousness of a perfect representative to replace our filthy garments with robes of his purity, crowning it all with the declaration of God, no matter what Satan says, no, mo- no matter what the accuser says, if you believe in the Lord, you are holy to the Lord. And if you follow Paul's argument in places like Romans 5, this is what we have in Jesus Christ. Exodus 28 points to the representative who can act for us. There are two great representative figures in human history. First of all, Paul says in Romans 5, there is Adam. Because all whom Adam represented, the human race, have fallen into sin and are sinners in the sight of God. That is not a trendy message, is it, for for 2020? But it is so true. Because of Adam, we are born in sin. But the second, the second representative of humanity is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all who believe are counted righteous in the sight of God. That is the gospel. And the declaration is made, holy is the Lord. The filthy garments are taken away and you're robed with the righteousness of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus himself. That's why I say, I was thrilled with this stuff. I really was. Exodus 28 points us to this principle of representation. The Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, he is our representative before the throne of God. Secondly, the principle of substitution in Exodus 29. So you have the principle of representation, Exodus 28. Exodus 29 is the principle of substitution. These two great gospel principles, representation and substitution, because there is a series of sacrifices that are required to ordain and consecrate the priests. In Exodus 29 and verse 10, in verse 15, and in verse 19, Aaron and his sons are to place their heads on the heads of the sacrificial victims before they are slain. And what that is, is a symbolic act of transfer. It transfers the sin and guilt to the victim who dies instead of them. It's a picture of substitution. And we see over and over again that the blood of the sacrifice points to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember Exodus 24, the blood of these victims is applied to the altar and to the priests. It satisfies God and it cleanses them. And it is applied to the tip of their right ear and to their right thumb and to the big toe of their right foot as a way to save all of them. They're entirely cleaned by the blood shed here. Every faculty of their fallen humanity covered by the blood. God is satisfied, propitiation, and they're cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice which points us to the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's great words, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because he represented us, Jesus Christ could act instead of us He bore the wrath and the curse of God 
the penalty of our sin in our place. All of our guilt was bundled together and reckoned to his account. It is though we placed our hands on his head and the great exchange took place. Jesus was treated as we deserve and his righteousness was reckoned to us. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. Jesus was treated as we deserve and his righteousness was reckoned to us. Paul says that he was submerged beneath our sin. He was made sin. He was, he was the appalling sight of our foulest transgressions in the sight of God. But he was perfect. He had no sin of his own. It's sometimes helpful to remember this, that the father looked on his son and he saw all of your careless words. He saw all of your stupidity. He saw all of your lustful thoughts, all of your despairing doubts. He looked at his perfect, obedient son and the wrath of God fell on Jesus' head. And what that means is that when he looks at us, wretched, wretched, in our helplessness and spiritual death, filthy, guilty, he said over me, because of the substitute, holy to the Lord. What a remarkable, what a remarkable thing that the banner on your turban is holy to the Lord. He said over you what he said over his son, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel. Representation and substitution and they point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. So we see him bearing more than the weight of a wooden cross and the cruel insults of the crowd as he went to the crucifixion. We see him bearing a much greater load. Pressing down upon our Saviour, he bore the burden of my sin and your sin. Richard Cecil said, he went to the cross to drink to the dregs the cup of wrath without mercy, that we might drink the cup of mercy without wrath. Isn't that beautiful? Our Saviour, he went to the cross to drink the cup of wrath without mercy, so you and I might drink the cup of mercy without wrath. That is the gospel, the glorious gospel. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. So he's our representative and he's our substitute. Exodus 28, if you remember, it points to Jesus as our representative. Exodus 29 points to Jesus our substitute. And then five gospel practices. The focus of Exodus 30 to 31. Because if we get a hold of the gospel and we're reminded afresh of the glory of the gospel, it will combust in the engine of our Christian lives. It will propel us and enable us to live for his glory. Not because we're trying to make him love us, but because we see he has loved us and given himself for us. We want to honour him with a life of joyful obedience. 
So these five gospel practices that I think should be part of our response. The practice of prayer, Exodus 31 to 10. The practice of prayer, because Moses is given the instructions for this altar of incense located in front of the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. In Exodus 30, 7 to 8, Aaron is to burn incense morning and evening whenever he tends the lampstands. Revelation 5, verse 8, says that the incense that John sees is a symbol of the prayers of the saints. So the incense cloud is a picture of the prayer of God's people ascending before God's throne. How do you respond to Jesus? We've just heard he's our representative and our substitute. You let your prayers go up more than a night. A person who grasps the wonder of what God has done for them will always be a praying person. And a church that proclaims the good news of the gospel will be a praying church. So the first response is the response of prayer. That's Exodus 31 to 10. Exodus 30, 11 to 16 is the second response. The practice of generosity. This census tax, the levy, used to support and maintain the tabernacle and its worship. It's atonement money, we are told. We're reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. So we're not our own. How should we respond? We are to respond generously, giving ourselves and all that we have sacrificially, giving our time, our talents and our money for the maintenance of the worship of God and for the extension of his kingdom. So the first response to the wonder of the gospel is the practice of prayer. The second, the practice of generosity. And thirdly, the practice of repentance. Exodus 30, again, 17 to 21. This bronze basin that is constructed and placed in the courtyard between the altar and the tabernacle. Whenever the priests Aaron and his sons begin to minister, they're the first to wash their hands and their feet. And over and over and over again they are to do it. Because they would be completely filthy from the sacrifices. They would be stained with blood. And again and again and again and again they would need to wash to be clean. John 13, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he loved his own and he loved them to the end. If you remember, he stood up, he took off his outer garments, he wrapped himself with a robe and he washed his disciples' feet to their great astonishment. And this is what he explained. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. You see, and we, like the disciples, need ongoing cleansing. We've been cleaned, cleansed once for all by Christ when we came to know him in the gospel. But there's still, isn't there, friends, we know this, daily grime, daily sin, repenting to be done. You do not come to Christ once, you come to Christ always. You come for cleansing to Jesus who takes the servant posture and by his blood he washes us clean. Our prayer needs to be, Lord Jesus, if you are willing, 
you can make us clean. So what did the, we're talking about the response. So chapter 30 covered those three things. Prayer, generosity, repentance. And then chapter 31. Fourth, the practice of ministry. Because after giving instructions about the anointing oil and the incense, how to make it, and after all the other instructions about the furniture and the tabernacle and the priestly garments, God does more than simply leave us with commands. He provides for Israel His Spirit that they may have the necessary skills to fulfill the commands to construct the tabernacle and its furnishings. Because it's in Exodus 31, 2 and 3 that Bezaliel and Aholiab, I don't know how to pronounce that, and all the able men, verse 6, are given the skills that they will need for, their, for the work. In verse 3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. You see, he gives us the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. The gift of the Spirit in the Old Testament was limited and constrained. You can read about it at times. The Holy Spirit was given for like a purpose. But the, the gift in the, of the Spirit in the Old Testament points us to the fullness of the gift of the Spirit that the church enjoys since Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in your heart, equipping and enabling you to will and to do of His good pleasure. There is work to be done. There's commandments to obey. The tabernacle, which is the church of Jesus Christ, is under construction. And all of us have a role in its building. But he does not leave us to our best efforts and our own strength. He gives us the Holy Spirit that we may fulfill our callings. So, Exodus 30, we're talking about the response, tells us about the practice of, um, of, ge of generosity and of repentance and of ministry, but now at last the practice of rest. Sorry, the practice of prayer first. Now the practice of rest. That's very well timed. Because you've taken all that work and it, it, it was exhausting even to read it. It must have been exhausting to hear it. But what a daunting body of instruction God has delivered to Israel through Moses. And I love the fact that at the end of it he reminds them, keep the Sabbath holy. Remember the practice of rest. Not just rest for your body, and we should rest. We must keep the Sabbath day holy, but we must remember to what the Sabbath day points us. Rest from dead works to serve the living God by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, where is true rest to be found? In Jesus. We rest on Him, and we find rest in Him. Sin, sick world-weary as we are, we need that rest. I love to come in, you know, I, I, I look forward to coming here on Sundays because it is a safe place where we can worship God together. 
But it's a crazy, sin-sick world out there which makes you very, very weary. Very, very weary. If you look at the kind of discussions that, that have been had, it makes you weary. So it's a great reminder that we are to rest on Christ. He is our representative. He is our substitute. Jesus Christ is offered in the Gospel. He is our representative and He is our substitute. And we are to rest on what He has done. But it's by resting on what He has done we're enabled to press on. That's why we find the fuel to keep going in that long obedience in the same direction which is the Christian life. I found it a challenge and a conviction when I was preparing and reading this again last night that if you're resting on Christ or are you trying to live the Christian life under your own steam? You will run out of steam. You will run out of steam. It's an impossible task because there's rest only in one place. There's only one place where there's soul-nourishing, life-giving, heart-deep rest. Brothers and sisters, there is rest for you in Christ. Two gospel principles. We need a representative, and we have one in the Lord Jesus. We need a substitute, and we have one in the Lord Jesus. And that is the fuel that enables us to live out these five gospel practices. Prayer, generosity, What's the third one? Um, repentance, well done. Ministry and rest. May God bless us all. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful to Christ for the gospel of his saving grace. Our Lord Jesus, our representative, our substitute, who wonderfully did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The unjust, the just for the unjust, given his life for us to bring us back to God. Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus, to rest on him, and by resting there to find the fuel supplied by your Holy Spirit to enable us to live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.